Thanks very much for staying with us. Time now for Eye on Africa with me, Georgia Calvin-Smith. Tonight, you and your researchers looking into the rise of violent extremism in sub-Saharan Africa say the spike in recruitment is often not down to religious zeal, but more mundane drivers like a need for a job or anger over previous military abuse. Also, Russia pledges to stand by West Africa countries battling extremist conflict. Sergei Lavrov tries to further extend Russia's regional influence during a trip to Mali. And as more Burkina Bay refugees flee attacks at home by heading into Ghana, there's growing concern there of a possible spillover of the jihadist violence seen in Burkina Faso. But the country's early response to the risk seems to be holding up. But first, Sub-Saharan Africa is the only region where violent extremism is getting markedly worse. Global deaths from terrorist attacks have fallen by a third since 2015. But in 2021, almost half of the global loss of life to violent extremism was in Sub-Saharan Africa, with Somalia, Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali the most affected. Recruitment is also on the rise. An investigation from the UN's International Development Agency says that those signing up are doing so because of economic factors rather than religious ones. And it's also raised concerns that military anti-terror campaigns can sometimes make the problems more profound. For a closer look at their findings, I'm joined now by Ahim Steiner from the UNDP. Ahim, thanks very much for making the time to speak to us. So first of all, is there anything unique about sub-Sahara, sub-Saharan Africa that's led to it becoming an increasingly important staging site for extremist activity? Well, I think in principle, one has to begin by answering no, because we have seen these phenomena also occur in other parts of the world. What I think in part is happening, however, is that in uh, a number of African nations, um, the weakness of the state, the corrosion of that social contract between people and, and their governments have created the kind of space and the vacuum into which violent extremist groups can easily enter and uh, essentially uh, put down their roots. And that is what we have seen, particularly in the Sahel region and even beyond that in recent years. Now, the report departs from some uh, perhaps widely accepted assumptions about what can cause radicalism. Um, and the insight that you have comes from uh, interviews that you've done with thousands of combatants or former combatants. Now, what have you learned about the reality of what is driving um, sub-Saharan Africans to join extremist groups and also to, to leave them? Well, in 2017, we published um, a major report that for the first time actually went and uh, interviewed either combatants, former combatants, people in jail to better understand what motivated them, what drove them into the hands of these violent extremist groups. And we have now tripled the sample and in 2022, uh, 2021, interviewed over 2,100 people in eight countries. Because I think much of what we are increasingly finding is that the narrative that people are being pulled, for example, by religious extremism into these groups is actually less valid than the push factors, which are the search for jobs, 25% of people who ended up in these violent extremist groups said it is the ability to earn an income, a livelihood. If you add up uh, those who said that economic desperation was pushing them out of their communities, you add another 40%. So a very significant part of the capacity to recruit derives from economic uh, desperation on the one hand, and in many of these countries, 
essentially the absence of a developmental state, the basic services of education, health not being available. And then many also commented that these groups then sometimes provide alternative security, alternative justice, which in the absence of a nation state and the government being present, become the kind of factors that lead communities to fall uh, in with these groups. But many who also have left them recognize that very often they have been false promises. Now, another point that you have raised within the report um, is the effect of military crackdowns, how they can sometimes inflame tensions. Um, funnily enough, we actually tackled this very question yesterday on Eye on Africa. We were talking about some of the concerns seen in, in Eastern DR Congo and the, the, the military response there. Um, but particularly, you know, considering uh, volatile regions like Eastern DR Congo, what is the alternative when you're faced with persistent, armed, violent extremism? Well, let me be very frank. There is certainly no silver bullet, nothing that can you know, just turn the whole situation around. But what we have seen is that the securitized approach where military police forces uh, essentially confront these phenomena of violent extremism have largely failed. And therefore, we need to go back to the fundamental drivers of this. And much of what UNDP, much of what we as the UN today try to do in the Sahel region, friends, is to tackle issues of um, poverty. And very basically speaking, for a fraction of the cost, we can help communities to reestablish viable local economies. You know, just building a market hall, having a police station, having the courts function again, a school, a health center. These are the kinds of services that, you know, people are looking for, for their children, for their families, to be able to make a living. That is, at a fraction of the cost, ultimately the better way of dealing with this. And unfortunately, what you also alluded to is whenever you put military and security apparatus into such conflicts, inevitably there are you know, also human rights violations. And 50%, almost 50% of those we interviewed actually cited these trigger events and human rights violations being the most prominent ones as events that drove them also to join these movements. You know, when the military invades a village, when your father gets arrested or maybe your sister is raped um, or your brother or sister are killed. Those are traumatic events that very often have also been an explanation that we have found of why people join these violent extremist groups in the first place. So it becomes a vicious circle. And the way out of that, that is the core message of our work, is we must go back to the fundamentals of development and address the root causes that are pushing people into the hands of these violent extremist groups. Thank you very much, Akeem Steiner there from the UNDP. And Russia's foreign minister has pledged the Kremlin's help to West African states battling jihadism. Sergei Lavrov wrapped up talks in Mali on Tuesday during a visit aimed at expanding his country's influence on the continent. Both Mali and Russia are increasingly internationally isolated. Russia, because of the war in Ukraine, and the Malian regime for perceived failures on human rights issues. Regional correspondent Sam Bradpiece talks us through. Lavrov's visit to Mali, the first of any Russian foreign minister, is symbolic of the growing relationship between two regimes which have become pariahs on the international stage. Lavrov pledged more military support to the Malian government, which has been in power since a coup in 2021, to help them tackle Islamist groups in the country. He also reportedly pledged deliveries of oil, wheat and fertilizer. But for the Malians, Lavrov's visit means more than just material support, according to some analysts. 
They're seeking legitimacy in the eyes of France. After challenges from France, from ECOWAS and its sanctions, from the UN peacekeeping force, Mali is really trying to make a big statement to show that it means business, to show that it's a sovereign country, a theme often evoked in Bamako. They want to show that today Mali is a sovereign country capable of choosing its own partners. Policymakers in the West will be worried about Lavrov's promise to give more military support to Mali, particularly given that just last week experts from the UN called for an independent investigation into possible war crimes committed by Malian state forces and Russian mercenaries belonging to the Wagner Group. Sam Bradpiece there for us. Now, although Ghana so far escaped being directly targeted by suspected jihadists, there is growing concern that it risks being drawn into un instability, undermining other countries in the Gulf of Guinea. Togo, Benin and Ivory Coast have seen a rise in, in, in attacks. And there's also worry about spillover from Burkina Faso to Ghana's north. Caroline Lambalet tells us more. Elima's town is still within eyesight. It's less than two kilometers away in Burkina Faso, just across the border from where she is now in northern Ghana. In December, jihadist gunmen infiltrated her town, killing two people. Now, many are too scared to go back. It's my country, but now we're scared to be there. Burkina is no good anymore. People are being slaughtered like chickens. It's no good anymore. Her children still cross over to go to school in their old town, but at night, they come back to Ghana. The authorities say the presence of these refugees has got people in Ghana worried about what could be in store for them. Thousands of people have been killed in Burkina Faso over the past years. Two million have been displaced. The country is grappling with a jihadist insurgency which spread into the country from neighboring Mali. Now. Ghanaian officials say they're mobilizing the army, police and immigration authorities to help control the porous border. They warn of the consequences should the violence spill over into Ghana. If we have uh, an insecurity like, you know, the other countries are having, it's basically going to tear Ghana apart because Ghana is, uh, remember, we have over 1,500 ethnic groupings and we're all knitted together and living together. So if they are able to you know, use a, a particular ethnic group and they are fighting against the other groups. You can just imagine what is going to happen. The authorities say they're not taking any chances. For now, there still hasn't been a direct attack on Ghana. Now, the mining industry is of huge importance to the continent and South Africa's Indaba conference is a key date for those looking at how to steer the sector to play a role in the transition of Africa to a lower carbon economy. But South Africa's own mining production has been hit hard by ongoing blackouts. Our team went to Cape Town to hear more about the highs and the hurdles ahead for the sector. It's known as the world's largest gathering of African ministers. And spirits are high at the mining in Daba in Cape Town this year because African mineral production has returned to pre-pandemic levels. 30% of the world's mineral resources are on the continent. In some parts of West Africa, political instability has enabled large-scale exploitation. And illegal gold mining is also a problem in the host country, South Africa. But the current energy crisis poses a bigger threat. The outgoing state power supplier's CEO gave investors some reassurance. 
there's more than 9,000 megawatts of new capacity that is either in the process of being built or in the process of going through uh, engineering, financial close, uh, and EIA processes to get connected to the grids. Around 10 billion rands worth of private investment into renewable energy is expected to make a large difference next year. In the meantime, South Africans expect President Cyril Ramaphosa to declare a state of disaster at Parliament's opening on Thursday. Well, that's it for Eye on Africa. Thanks for joining us. Do so again. Till then, take care.